Hi, I'm Dennis Sheeran. And I'm Raymond Steinmetz from the Instant Relevance Podcast. And we're part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Lorenzo Gomez III. We're focused on his book, Tafoya Toro, Three Years of Fear. In his book, he uses his stories from his middle school years in one of San Antonio's most crime-riddled neighborhoods to help the reader take steps to improve their own mental health. Lots to learn. Powerful, powerful, powerful book. Thanks for listening. By the way, don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. The great lie of our society is that mental health and mental illness are the same. Lorenzo Gomez III wants to dispel that notion for good. In his new book, Tafoya Toro, Three Years of Fear, published in 2019, he reaches back in time to share stories of his turbulent, traumatic, and often violent middle school years in one of San Antonio's most crime-riddled neighborhoods. He opens up to reveal the fear, anxiety, and hopelessness he felt as a teenager and how those forces shaped his life until he began taking steps as an adult to improve his mental health. Alternating between shocking stories from his youth and letters written to his 12-year-old self, Lorenzo shows young people how to retake the battle of their mind by dealing with what is true and dismantling the lies that lead to self-deception. In Lorenzo's journey, readers will see someone who understands what they feel, knows what they're going through, and is standing up to tell them, decide today that you are worthy. Lorenzo Gomez III came over, overcame his mental health obstacles to become a proud participant in the transformation of the city he loves, San Antonio. He's the chairman of Geekdom, Texas' Texas's largest co-working space, the co-founder of the 8020 Foundation and TechBlock, and has served on the board of several nonprofits, including SA2020 and City Education Partners, which I'm guessing SA is San Antonio 2020. <laughs> Um, Lorenzo is honored to have spoken at several universities, including Texas State and UTSA, and cherishes the opportunity to connect with students as a speaker at local schools. He's the author of the Cilantro Diaries, which quickly became a bestseller and required reading at Texas A&M when it was published in 2017. Lorenzo, thanks for joining me today. Say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for having me. I'm super excited to be here and be a part of your program. Well, I appreciate you being here, and your book is in, is incredible. I uh, the 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 way it's put together, the, the stories, and just the imagery that you create um, are, are just um, overwhelming. And I'm sorry that you went through this. This is because uh, you feel those emotions. Um, wh- wh- what I'd like to do is um, let's focus on, uh, you know, in the be- beginning of the book, you are 11 years old, getting ready to go to middle school. So, so to remind everyone, the, the book is called uh, Tafoya Toro, Three Years of Fear, published in 2019, this year, in the beginning of the book, you're 11 years old, getting ready to go to middle school. Could you describe the neighborhood and the area that you lived in at the time? Yeah, so the, uh, so the, the neighborhood I lived in, what's so interesting about my neighborhood is that it wasn't really known and branded as, you know, as a bad neighborhood. I mean, it wasn't a good neighborhood. I lived in the inner city of San Antonio, you know, right next to the highway, on a dead end street called West Hermosa, which means beautiful in Spanish. And, you know, I write in the book how it's kind of ironic because it wasn't really beautiful. <laughs> like it was just a very inner city kind of lots of graffiti right next to a big Catholic church. 
Um, and to me, it was just, you know, my home. And it wasn't till, you know, I started, go wasn't till my middle school years where I started to realize that the environment was very different than what I thought it was because my home life was very good. My parents, you know, had created a really great environment for me and my six siblings. And, um, and then I, when I started going to FOIA, I realized that I was, I living in the inner city was very different uh, than other parts of the city and how there was this quick, you know, there was a lot of violence, especially during the early nineties that started to bubble up. And I sort of started to see how, my environment was a little bit kind of rough and I just wasn't prepared for that. And so, you know, the neighborhood was really, you know, it was just one where it was predominantly Hispanic, you know, um, and it was one of those neighborhoods where most of the people that grew up there had never really left kind of a, you know, 13 block radius of their house. You know, they'd never been on a plane, things like that. And so when I started going to middle school, I went from an environment that I was, that I thought was okay, but really wasn't to an even worse neighborhood and in a worse environment. And it just kind of sort of, you know, culture shock me and that that comes out loud and clear because it, it, <laughs> it we're it, the introduction of the book and it, it, for the readers you, when when you get this book and you're going to get this book because it's it's powerful it's going to make you understand uh um you're, you're really going to understand where uh, lorenzo is coming from and what his point is the uh um just the way he writes but in just the, in, the introduction alone as you get the setting and everything going um i mean you just really get a feel for uh um, the environment which you were and and this whole kind of almost a mistake that uh, the thought that you are going to go to a better place and uh, not quite the case the uh, you know in, in the introduction you describe a fight that you and your sister stumbled into on your way home from elementary school and you reflect before I saw that fight school had been about learning could you tell the listeners what you're talking about yeah so I think that you know when you're when you're a young person you're kind of you know very naively walk around the world and and, uh, you know, you think certain things and you just believe what the adults tell you and what your parents tell you. And so school for me was about learning. School was about studying. And in my house, school was about getting good grades. Right? My parents did not like if you got, you know, you got bad grades. And so my little sister and I, in the beginning of the book, we used to have to walk across the, the bridge. So we lived near the main highway, which is Interstate 10 in San Antonio. And uh, we used to walk across it every day to go home. So we'd get dropped off at school, but we'd walk home together. And, uh, and we'd walked across this bridge many times. And then this one day, we just saw a bunch of, we called them big kids because that's what we called middle school and high school kids. You know, we were in elementary school. <laughs> and, uh, and there were just a ton of big kids out. And they shouldn't have been out because the, the middle, sorry, elementary school, at least in San Antonio, gets out way before the middle school and high school kids. And I think they do that on purpose. And so we saw all these kids. And I, I don't know if they were middle school or high school because I was just so small. Uh, but I knew they were big kids. And so what ended up happening is, uh, there was about a hundred big kids that were gathering on this bridge that goes over, you know, you know, almost, uh, you know, five or six lanes of internet interstate 10 traffic. And so it's a very dramatic setting. It's a chain link bridge that goes across the entire highway. And so we walked across it while all these big kids were gathered and it was sort of scary to us. And then as soon as we got home, we didn't go inside. We wanted to watch what was going on and it turned into this hundred person gang fight. Uh, and it was, it looked like kind of out of Mad Max, the movie, because it was this big chain link, you know, long tube. And there was a hundred guys trying to beat each other up and the cops came and these guys were jumping off. And so I was just not prepared for something so big and uncontrollable and unpredictable as a little, as a fifth grader. 
And so to me, school was about learning. And then I thought, am I going to have to deal with these types of things? And no one prepares you for that. No one ever sits you down and says, hey, one of the things you might encounter are these ginormous fights of uncontrollable violence and, and, uh, and danger. And you just need to be prepared for that, right? And so to me, school was about learning, not about having to be safe and learn. And so that was sort of an, a rude awakening for me as a fifth grader. I got you. I appreciate you sharing that because, you know, and, and this leads right into what I want to ask you about next because, you know, one of the things that you do in your writing is you paint these images that the reader, you know, you, you help, you make us feel like we're there and we're with your emotions. We're in your community. Uh, we're sitting in the cafeteria, gym class, locker room, bathroom, every aspect of the stories you're sharing. Um, you have a way of writing that I, I feel like I'm there with you. And I, I, it's, it's awesome. Um, you know, what I want to say is that it, it's not easy to stop. Matter of fact, <laughs> I found myself um, going, um, okay, I'll just read a little bit more. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and it just it didn't work that way. I'm like, I got to keep, I got to keep reading. And every writer's dream, Stephen. <laughs> thanks. And I'm, I, you're right. I mean, it's, it's there and you, you got this incredible talent at this. And, and as a reader, you know, like I said, I want to keep on reading. Could you talk a little bit about what you're hoping to accomplish by writing and uh, publishing um, to Foya Toro? Yeah, so I, one of my mentors, uh, who's, who happens to be my boss, but he really is a mentor and a friend of mine, uh, he was one of the people that really helped me understand the true power of storytelling. And, uh, and he always said, you know, people only remember stories. And so to me, that has always stuck with me, which is if you want to get a point across, if you want to sell something, if you want to give a pitch, if you want to sell an idea in business, to me, it's always anchored best in the story. And so, you know, the, the, the short answer to your question is I wanted to use these stories, which were kind of traumatic in my childhood, um, but I didn't want it to be just this big, long sob story. I wanted to use these stories and turn them into something helpful because I struggled with fear and anxiety uh, throughout my life until I found therapy. And so I wrote the book for anyone else that's struggling with fear and anxiety. But there's a lot of therapy in the book. There's a lot of clinical principles, but the reader won't know it because I wrote it in a way to where I only want the reader to be focused on the story. I want the story to be so approachable that they're going to get the principles sort of like the Trojan horse. Um, if they get to the end of the book, they will have, they will have digested uh, at least a dozen mental health principles that I've inserted in the book. But nobody will remember if you talk about, you know, the clinical, you know, negative self-talk or things like that. They will only remember the story. And so I wanted to write the best story I could so that the reader can approach it and remember it. And then they will remember other parts that I want to remember. But it's all anchored in a good story. Well, it is definitely anchored in that. And you have, <laughs> I mean, it's because you have these amazing stories. And, and, and one of the things you do, which I'll come back to in just a little bit, is you have... <clears throat> you have these areas where you're writing letters to yourself. And, uh, and I love that part as well, which I'm guessing that's a lot of where you're getting uh, those lessons in about the uh, mental health, which uh, not only guessing it is obviously. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to do is uh, let's, let's look at uh, in the introduction, you, you share this story that you're sent to a different school from the one you're supposed to attend. And it's because it has a special program and the, the thought your family is thinking, this is going to be wonderful to be able to get accepted in this program and go to this school. Um, you even talk about how the principal has a name for it um, and a unique name, which I'll let you tell that part of it. It's supposed to be a better place to be. You discover that it has problems of its own. 
Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I was supposed to, uh, so I was supposed to go to this middle school that one of my sisters had gone to. And, uh, and my parents were like, you know, they, they basically said, uh, you're not going to that school cause we've kind of looked into it and, and we're not, we're not having any of that. So I, I they, they found this school, uh, called Tafoya and Tafoya was this special school. It was, you know, I don't, I, I'm not a teacher. I'm not in the, the, the teacher world, but it was a, it was a multilingual program that made it sort of a magnet charter. It wasn't quite a charter school. I th- they called it a magnet school. So you had to apply, right? You had to get accepted into it. And, um, and if you did, then you, when you went there, you could pick a foreign language and that's what made it a multilingual program. So I was so excited when I got accepted because I had really good grades in elementary school. And uh, I, and when I got, it, it was sort of the first special thing I experienced as a kid where I was good enough to get into something and it just really made me feel great. And I thought, you know, and I say in the book, I thought it was like getting accepted into Harvard and the principal at the time used to refer to it as the Harvard middle schools. And, and it's just really, it's really cute if you think back on it, cause you know, all these little kids and, and, and it was in the, it was in such an um, interesting neighborhood. Um, and so you had to get bussed in from your normal school that you should have gone to. We called it your home school. So you, all of these schools uh, had students that got accepted to Tafoya and were bussed in. And so you'd get bussed in and you were mingling with the population of the neighborhood of Tafoya. So it was a school that served the neighborhood and it also had a program just for these special kids. And in the book, it's sort of interesting because we, we ended up referring to, it sounds, it sounds so terrible now as an adult saying it, but we referred to the kids from the neighborhood as the regulars. Like they were regular kids and we were the multilingual students. So messed up. And, uh, but the neighborhood of, of Tafoya was really, you know, nobody really knew this at the time. I didn't know this, but, you know, just to give a backdrop, you know, uh, story to your listeners, it is in one of the most economically segregated zip codes in the entire country. It is across the street from one of the oldest housing projects in the country. And I always tell people that Eleanor Roosevelt had to help get them built because there was a union dispute that she had to help in, like, come in and negotiate and help settle. So they're very, very old. Um, when I went there at the time, uh, Tafoya's on the west side of San Antonio in a, in a very dense, I mean, 100% Hispanic population. And the tallest building in the entire neighborhood that you could see from anywhere was the county jail. I mean, it just, it just stuck out like a big kind of beacon. And it was very, very eerie to always be able to see the jail. And I didn't know this at the time, but when I went there, um, that was probably the second or third year of a 10 year reign where San Antonio went through its highest level of gang violence. And so I just didn't know any of these things as a 12 year old. And I stepped off the bus into this environment that I just wasn't prepared to deal with. And so, you know, uh, having, having gone through that and having gone through that environment, I realized that, uh, I, I wasn't about learning anymore. I was about being safe. And so it's the, you know, the reason the subtitles three years of fear was every day was me trying to not be fear. Sorry. Every day was me trying to not be afraid. It was not about how do I learn what they're teaching in social studies, right? It was a very different very much so. And it's very clear that comes out loud and clear. The, uh, you know, it, it, and something that you share in chapter one, uh, which is that chapter is called the first day of middle school. Um, in middle school, my nervousness and anxiety tipped. I had all kinds of thoughts in my head about who I was supposed to be and who the people around me were. Many of them exaggerated. And I, I, I love this part. Most of them untrue. That poisoned me in the years to come. Can you explain this thought? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> having gone through a lot of really awesome, you know, therapy as an adult, and, you know, when I, when I started going to therapy, that's really, you know, I, and like a lot of people, I, my first two therapists were terrible. And then I found a really great kind of coach who took, gave me real skills to use. And so one of the exercises I went through was kind of going back in time and, and going and visiting these years of my life that were very formative and, and very influential in my mental health. And this is one of them. And what I realized was there were a lot of things I told myself that were just not true. And, uh, and in only going through therapy and working on my mental health was I able to rewire my brain. And I'll just walk through a couple of them. You know, I was, I was so afraid of some of the students from the West side because that's where, that's where the toughest, uh, uh, most dangerous gangs or the gangs that I was the most afraid of were. So I told myself this story that anybody from the West side is bad and anybody from the West side is dangerous. And that's just simply not true. And so in one of the letters, I'm really trying to tell my 12-year-old self, you know, and, and trying to set things right, which is, hey, there were some bad dudes there, but you are forgetting there were a lot of good kids from that neighborhood, but you weren't paying attention to them because you were focused on the guys you didn't want to beat you up. And so I'm really trying to remind myself, you cannot label this entire neighborhood as bad because that is, that is, that is, that is the worst uh, that is the worst story that you can tell yourself. And it's not true. You know, one of the other stories I told myself too was that my parents somehow were punishing me for sending me to this school. And I was very angry for many years that they sent me to this school and I witnessed all these things. But as an adult, I went back and I said, actually, that is not true. You know, my parents found the most special school that they could at the time for free, right? And it was the, it was the, it was the most special school that they could afford and they went out of their way to get me there. And so one story is true and one story is not. And yet for years, I, I chose to tell myself a false story and really have all this bitterness and resentment that I had to unwind later. And so I think that, you know, in that chapter, when I'm writing about, I think that what I want the reader to do is to sort of challenge themselves to ask questions about that part of their life. And is there anything there that they've told themselves that might not be true that they need to start uh, going and rewiring in the brain. That's awesome. The, uh, and, and what I want to remind everybody about right here, cause, cause you keep, you re have referred to it several times is that you have these little segments where there, there are boxes on the side where it's a, an act, a letter that you've written to yourself, your 12 year old self. And where, where'd that idea come from? How did, how did that come about? Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's a great question. So I, you know, when I, when I first sat down with my editor who really helps me, her name's Barbara Boyd, she's just a, this amazing woman, and really more like one of my writing mentors, we were talking about, you know, all of the important things like, okay, who's this, who's the audience for this? <clears throat> you know, what do we want them to, to go away with? And we quickly realized that, you know, I, I'd wanted to always tell these stories. I thought I wanted to write it in, mem in memoir form, but Barbara really pushed back on me and said, if you write it in memoir form, it, it's really not helpful to your reader. It's just a story. And so it was very important for me that the story be helpful to the reader. And so as we talked about the mental health principles that I've gone through, I think, I don't know who thought of it. It might've been her, but we were on a call and we said, you know, what if we did a series of letters uh, after every chapter where we can sort of stop after the story and then go back and tell uh, tell my younger self the truth or really break down what happened. And part of that, so it, it happened from this one call, but what accelerated it was my ther current therapist is this amazing guy. 
uh, named Marnie, and he is a practitioner of a very specific kind of psychotherapy called TA, which stands for transactional analysis. And in transactional analysis, it's very simple and I love it. It's there, there are three ego states. There is a parent, an adult, and a child. And he basically walks you through what do each of these uh, three ego states need during their development. And then at any given time, one of them is driving the bus for you. And the question is, um, is it the right one, right? So there are times when you need to let your inner child out and just go play, right? And just have fun and explore the world. And there are times when your parent comes out and says, hey, don't touch that, that's hot, like it's gonna hurt you. And so, you know, it's not that one should always be in charge, it's which is the right one to be in charge. So the letters are actually very TA based. So it is my adult ego state writing to my child ego state. And so it creates this frame for transactional analysis for me to really talk to myself, but also I'm talking to the reader in a very safe way to really break something down and say, hey, let's talk about this. Because if you're afraid, as an adult, I'm here to tell you that, that it's okay, that it's safe now, and then let, let's work through some of these things that you went through. And so the letters became really important because that is where I have all of my mental health principles. And so I think each letter has at least two or three uh, clinical mental health principles, but I, I don't call them by their clinical name. And so I'm just really trying to break down the story or, you know, later in the book, you can tell that I get very angry and that I'm, I, and that I'm contemplating doing things that are just not in my character. And so I have to go back and tell myself, Hey, like it was okay for you to be angry, but what was not okay is what you were thinking about doing. That's not okay. And so let's, talk about the healthy way to deal with your emotions as opposed to where you were, where you were almost going. And it just come, I, I just can't say enough about how it's written. I, you know, because you go through your stories and, and then you go and then you read the letters and it then brings together that thought because I, I, you know, I don't know about lots of other people, but I mean, I myself have thought, you know, Daggum, I wish I could go back and tell myself, you know, <laughs> in, in this situation right here, and it's, you know, and then some of it is right there in the middle of junior high. And, you know, I was someone who went a long ways away. I didn't, uh, there are very few kids that I knew in, in my school and I had moved around a whole bunch. So I didn't know many kids anyway. And, you know, it's one of those things when you then get the attention of the wrong crowd and mm -hmm. uh, you start thinking about it and you start, um, wondering, you know, if I'd only made this move then, would this have saved me from that uh, transgression or whatever it was? And, you know, in, in one of my cases, it was a locker room and, uh, you know, a PE locker room with nobody else in there and except for the trouble. <laughs> um, right. So, right. And so it's, uh, you know, this is, you, you really do just a great job. I can't say enough about it. Those, those, the gray boxes kind of, they go back in, the letters go back into um, a situation and then you, and you talk about what you would say to yourself and, and, and you're not using that clinical language. So I'm not sitting there trying to look up words or anything, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what, what also like, I think a, a more basic example is I feel like we could all go back and tell our younger selves don't send that angry text or that angry email. Like I think everybody's had that, you know, and it's like, if I could just say, don't just stop, like, like go for a walk, you know, or sleep on it, you yes. know, you always make a better decision. And so to me, like, that's sort of like the most simple example of the letters, which is like, Hey, let's really talk about this because, and also I think it was very important for me to, uh, to really extend a lot of grace uh, because, because one of the other things I've struggled with is guilt and shame. And so a lot of the letters are me saying, Hey, you know what? It's okay. Like, 
Like if you did something that you're not proud of, or if you thought something, it's okay because that's in the past, right? You got to let it go. And what you decide to do now is all that matters. And that's also a very TA thing, which is very, and actually it's sort of, you know, my therapist tell me that in, in, um, in AA or Narcotics Anonymous, you know, one of the principles is, hey, if you've relapsed even five seconds ago and you decide to take a shower and go for a walk, that's actual progress. Like that is actually good behavior. And so part of the letters were me saying, hey, if you struggle with something or you did something, let's leave it in the past and say, it's okay. It happened. Let's move forward. But let me show you how to move forward in a healthy way. Excellent. Well, I, the, what you've done there is just magical. And uh, I, I, I really believe any, all my listeners, you've got to, uh, when you get a copy of Lorenzo's book, you're going to want to read those letters over again multiple times just because of the, the, the way it makes a point and, uh, and gives you a type of freedom to release yourself you know, um, from whatever it is that you're haunted by, which well done. The, you know, one of the things I want you to talk about a little bit here is something um, you get into the social roles that appeared in the classes in the school because you're in a school, it has rival gangs, it has different social classes and all of that ends up having its own, you know, unwritten rules. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it was, it was its own little ecosystem. Yes. And, and then in come the teachers and they assign seats <laughs> and, uh, and by assigning seats, maybe suddenly you're sitting next to, they would, you know, they would put rival gang members next to each other. And suddenly you're sitting next to one of your, um, antagonist, antagonistic yeah. uh, personalities. And, uh, and, and when you're talking about this, I, I'd like you to describe this just a little bit as well as then, could you kind of take a little detour and talk about the roosters? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, well, it's funny because, you know, uh, at Tafoya, it was almost, you know, in, in, so I'm going to use just dramatic terminology here, said the reader, but it's like, you know, you watch any prison movie, there's like the rules of the yard. And then there's, you know, whenever the, the, the guards or the warden are around it. So to me in the classroom at Tafoya, you know, we, we were sort of operating under the school's rules. And so if a teacher put me next to, a guy who was in a gang that hated my guts. There was sort of an unspoken rule that there was all, you know, truces in the classroom, right? And so it's because, because we knew we couldn't control it. And so it was sort of like, okay, if I'm sitting next to a regular who's in a gang that hates my guts in the classroom, it was actually okay. Um, it, it, was, it was actually weird, weird because it was okay to, to be uh, friendly to them and actually even sort of jokey with them. And there were some people uh, that I had a classroom with that we would joke around. And then as soon as we got to lunchtime, I mean, it was like we were from a different, you know, solar system, right? We wouldn't even look in each other's direction. And so, um, and I think that, you know, we were just, we knew we had to operate under the rules of the actual administrator, the teachers. Um, and so then when we got out to, in the areas where we sort of were ourselves were PE, you know, um, lunchtime, uh, before and after school, and so those are the areas where we sort of kind of, we all ended up finding our little crew. And so that's really how we created safety as 12 year olds was. We had a little posse that we hung at safety and numbers, but even then it proved to be uh, a little bit sketchy too, because there were all these other little booby traps that you didn't know about. Like, you know, at Tafoya having a birthday was dangerous because if they found out it was your birthday, they'd beat you up, which, which was, you know, another thing I added to my list of, I didn't know I was supposed to be afraid of having a birthday. And so uh, just things like that. And, but in the classroom, it was normally like, it was, it was, it was okay to operate in those rules. Uh, the, the story of the roosters is actually really funny because, you know, I, <laughs> like, 
it's so funny because my, my parents are both from Laredo, which is a border town, you know, I mean, you know, 100% Hispanic. Uh, and it's almost like very rural living inside of a city. And so I remember my grandma's neighbor, actually my grandma, you know, she had a fig tree and a lime tree and she grew her own jalapenos. And then the neighbor had like chickens and roosters and a donkey. I mean, it was weird, but it's in the city. It was so weird. Anyway, so my, my parents uh, uh, sort of had a lot of that rural lifestyle in them. And so we had a lot of chickens growing up. And I remember one time I was, as an adult, I asked my father because the, the San Antonio like policy, the, 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 the city code for having roosters is you're allowed three as long as it's 50 feet from a dwelling. And I once asked my father, I was like, how many chickens do we have growing up? He was like, oh, we had about a hundred. And I was like, what a hundred? <laughs> and so, so they, we had had these, these fighting roosters, which I later learned were originally from Africa. And, uh, but, and, and, you know, people, you know, people get very weird when I talk about this, but we were sort of kids and they, and my, my father had them, uh, gave them to us as pets. And so we were not engaged in like illegal rooster fighting. They, we really loved our roosters. And, um, and every once in a while we'd let them fight, uh, but, but only for a couple seconds because they were our pets. We loved them. And so we didn't want them to get hurt. But I, in, this, in the book, I tell the story about how my dad had this huge incubator and it would, it would sit in our dining room. It would sit uh, on the floor in the dining room and we would have these little eggs in there and it was just super magical whenever you would see them hatch. And in the book, I talk about how one time I saw these two fighting roosters hatch. And as soon as they got out of their eggs, they looked at each other, they started fighting. I mean, this was like, you know, they were like 30 seconds old and they're starting to peck each other. And it was sort of that, this is in their DNA. Like this is what they are like naturally. And so the reason I told that story was there were some gangsters at the FOIA where it's like, if you put them next to each other, they were just like those fighting roosters. I mean, it was like, all it took was for you to look at them for two or three seconds and it was just on. And, and so, and I remember seeing so many fights where it was like fists flying. It reminded me of feathers flying. Like it was so crazy. And, uh, and so I wanted to kind of put that imagery in the book because it really did remind me of that. Whereas when we were doing it, we would let them fight for two seconds and then spray, you know, with the water hose to separate them and put them back in their pens. Whereas in real life, it was much harder to separate uh, two dudes. And really at the FOIA, most of the fights that I saw were not just one-on-one. It was like, you know, five on five or 10 on one or something like that. And so it was much harder to break them up. But I always remember that visual of saying like, it's like some of these guys, they, they, to me, they look like fighting roosters in the sense that they were ready at any moment to, to throw down. And I just wanted to listen to, you know, punk rock music and not be in the middle of anything. At your uh, description of that is so amazing because that, you know having worked in a in a school setting where you deal with gangs I, the, the rooster imagery is just right there right you know just barely even one look at each other and I can just imagine that next thing you know is they're fighting each other you know it's like yeah. really dude that's what the heck it's you know I don't like the way your chicken's placed on your plate right there that's mine. yeah exactly yeah. yeah or like well, what are you staring at well what, what you know what what is it to you it, it's to me that was so that's what was one of the things that was so hard for me to reconcile was it almost seemed like there were no rules you could follow because there were so many ways that if someone wanted to pick a fight with you, they could. And it wasn't like, Hey, if you just stare at the ground, you'll avoid all fights. Right. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that was part of the, that was part of, I guess the animalness of the fighting, which was, it's kind of unpredictable and a little bit scary. Just amazing. Just amazing stories. And that's it. The, uh, 
once again, like I said, the imagery that you create is so just makes you just feel like you're right there and you can see that the roosters fighting and, and the, and uh, young people, you know, going at it like that. Wow. So, you know, one of the things that uh, you get into, you, you end up experiencing quite a bit of violence while you're there and you, you talk about how it kind of desensitized you to it. Can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah. So uh, in the in the early to mid '90s, San Antonio, uh, like I said before, had it was it was like a ten year streak of of its highest level of gang violence in the city's history. And that year that I was writing about, in that time, I think that San Antonio had about three point five drive by shootings every single day. And what ended up happening is my neighborhood. So it wasn't my neighborhood wasn't near Tafoya, but my neighborhood ended up being the second highest. Uh, like the, the, it, the, the a police officer told my mother it was the second hottest spot in the city for drive-by shootings. Wow. And so what happened is there were two houses literally next door to mine where there were uh, young men that lived there and they were all in the same gang. And they just, I mean, they must've had nothing better to do. They, they should have had, you know, they should have had a, I should have just bought them a Nintendo or something, but they clearly had nothing to do. So they were always going and shooting up other gangs and then, we would always get the retaliation drive-bys. And so it, it became such a regular occurrence that, um, that in the book I talk about, I was on the phone with my best friend at the time, his name was Joe, uh, and I, we were on, it was, you know, back when he had a landline that was connected by a really long cord to the wall. And so I remember I'm talking to Joe and I hear this drive-by and it's right next door. And without, just without even blinking, I said, hey, hang on one second, man. And then I kind of went around a wall, sat down, uh, made myself comfy and said, okay, what were you saying? And I just like, and I didn't know if hiding behind a wall was actually safe. It, that's just what I thought was safe. But I was so desensitized that I just said, hey, let me get into the position here real quick, just in case the drive-by hits my house. And then we, oh. can, we can keep going in our conversation. And another story in the book, and this is really where I kind of pressed my luck was, um, it, it got so bad and it got so normal that we would always get notified because whenever the young men would do a drive-by, they would send their mothers across the street to stay at one of our other neighbor's house. And so that's when we knew there was something happening. And so the mothers had this like informal network of notifying my mom, hey, there's, there's going to be a drive-by. And so I got so used to drive-bys that there was one day where they said, hey, there's a drive-by coming. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm really thirsty and I want a sun-kissed. And I thought, you know, this is so crazy to me. I was like, I bet I have enough time to go get a sunkissed before the drive-by happens. And so I, I, I started walking down the street. Uh, I crossed the street to go to the local picnic foods. And just then the van pulled up to do the drive-by and I was caught in the middle of the crossfire. And so I, I don't know how I wasn't shot, but, um, but it, but it just goes to how kind of warped my brain was because I would, I, I was thinking to myself, well, I can squeeze in a quick run to the, you know, stop and go to get a, to get a sun kissed. And, and I should, I, I should have just been locked down right in my room. And, but it, it got so normal. And I think that that was part of, um, that's part of the kind of, uh, mental health that I had to go unwind in therapy later, which was, Hey, that's not normal. And, you know, let's, let's talk about that and let's unpack it so that you can actually be a healthy adult. Thank you for sharing that. That's just, I, I, I can only imagine that if you got to that point and then you recognize that you got to that point, it's like, wow, okay, here I am in the middle and that's all because <laughs> I'm just ignoring it. You know, it's a, well, you know, one of the themes that you have throughout the book is the need for safety, safety in schools, safe places, safe groups, that sort of thing. Just like you just talked about violence. How about let's talk about Eddie, the bus driver. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love the story, by the way. I love this. This is awesome. Yeah. Well, it was, it's funny because, you know, I, I, so, uh, and, and thanks to my editor, Barbara, you know, she was really uh, good about saying, Hey, we didn't talk about the adults. You know, there's a lot of really great characters. <laughs> and so I kind of went back and did this mental inventory of the adults that really stood out to me. And one of them was the bus driver. And so, you know, we drove the, we rode the bus from our homeschool to the FOIA. Um, but the cool thing was the, the, the program we were in was so new and so special that um, we used, we, we didn't use the normal like yellow banana buses. The city of San Antonio's main transit system, which is called Via Metropolitan, um, would basically donate these brand new buses that the city used. Nice. They, were, and they, they were amazing. And so we'd get picked up by these brand new buses and bust at the FOIA. And so, you know, before the story of Eddie, Eddie was a bus driver who worked for Via, but every other bus driver before him was just an anonymous adult who kind of yelled at us and said, stay behind the yellow line. You know, you know nobody was allowed to, you know, don't, don't stand up, don't do anything. And my buddies and I were these kind of, you know, introverted kind of punk rock grunge guys who loved comic books. And Eddie was the first person who sort of treated us like an adult and talked to us and wanted to be our friend. And it was just so abnormal that we kind of fell in love with him. And he would always, and he was a gentleman, you know, he was, he was kind and I mean, he wouldn't put up any BS. So all of a sudden the bus ride was not only safe, but it turned into being this really fun part of our day. And so uh, Eddie just became this adult character. You know, I remember he was the first person that I ever saw wore uh, Ray-Ban aviator glasses. I mean, he was cool. He was just, <laughs> he made being a bus driver cool. And I had never thought being a bus driver would be cool. Awesome. And I think the other, the other thing he did that I wrote about in the story was like, the, we got to be such good friends and, and I could, dare I say, we were his favorites uh, that there was a time, and I know this is totally against the rules and they probably would have fired him, but there was a time where we, he would drop off all the students at Whittier, which is my homeschool. And then he would, he would let us stay on the bus and like three or four of us, he would drop us off in front of our house. Like he would go... Nice to our house and drop us off in this ginormous 30 foot brand new bus. <laughs> and I just felt like a movie star. And I was like, this is my limo. And it was just so cool, you know, how, and I'm just very thankful that he injected this really awesome kindness into that world during those three years when we were dealing with a bunch of other, you know, junk that we had to sort out. And so he kind of stood out like this bright shining uh, guy that just really was cool and 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 really rebranded what it meant to be a bus driver for me and, and so for many years and still today that's such an awesome and i hear it in your voice as well i mean it's just <laughs> such an awesome story and it's and it's <laughs> it, made, it made being a bus driver cool and that's yeah, yeah. Forward to that bus ride nice the uh and and i'm gonna use that as a lead into adult supervision because that's chapter six and and in chapter six you get into some of those adult characters and i and this is where you're killing me in this story because i'm like oh my gosh man, i'm gonna run out of time <laughs> and, uh, because i want to ask him about this i want to ask about that and in adult supervision that chapter is full of these characters but you know one of the things you say in a letter to yourself you say this these adults had great intentions. What do you mean? Well, I, I, I think that um, one of the lies that I told myself as a young man was these adults have abandoned us, they've forgotten us, and I'm over in the corner here trying not to get my butt kicked, and it's their fault. When in fact, the, the opposite was true. And you know, they were, they were absolutely trying to create safety, and, and they had a harder job because they were trying to create safety, trying to keep law and order, and trying to teach us something. And they were actually trying to teach us, you know, give us an education, which is, you know, 
you, like, which is funny because I don't ever, you know, I barely touch on the notion of learning in this book because that's not what that three years represented for me. It was not about learning. It was about surviving. And so these adults were doing so many great things, uh, but I wasn't paying attention to them. And I really chose to ignore them and say, no, 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 they're just, they're, they've forgotten about us. And, uh, and it's their fault that this is happening. Yet, you know, almost 20 years later, I look back and I go, they had no, I didn't have any idea that San Antonio was in the middle of its highest levels of gang violence. They had, they certainly didn't know that. I, I recently ran into one of the characters in that section, Officer Almendares, and he was the police officer for my school. And he goes to my parents' church and I ran into Officer Almendares and he told me, he said, Lorenzo, and I told him he's going to be in my book and he was very excited. And I said, he said, Lorenzo, you don't understand because I tell people, you know, I had a, you know, 30 plus year in the, in the police force. He goes, but those years were the worst. He said, I, like, people don't understand. He goes, I would say that the early 90s was the absolute worst for anybody to grow up in San Antonio specifically. And it sort of validated me because I thought to myself, well, I thought it was just, I, I thought that, you know, there was something wrong with me and the school and the system, but actually the whole city was experiencing it. And so it allowed me to give a lot of grace to the adults in hindsight, which was, if I didn't know that San Antonio was having a gang spike, they certainly didn't know. And so how were they supposed to cope with something that was an environment, that was a citywide environmental issue that they really had no control over? And so I think the letter is really trying uh, to allow me to go back and say, hey, you need to cut them some slack. And if you actually think about it, they did a really good job given the, the variables that they were given. That's so cool. It's such a powerful chapter because you get into a lot of different aspects of things and your your thoughts and you have to explain to yourself your adult self talking back to you about, uh, you know, they didn't necessarily mean it the way you understood it or whatever. And it just, it's such a powerful chapter. And I love your reference to the police officer when you call him, he was badass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he was. And it's so funny too because I, you know, um, I remember he was the first kind of, you know, up close and personal police officer that I'd ever met. And so I know there's a lot of people out there that have a very negative brand of policemen. And, you know, I, I'm not here to debate that, but he was my first brand ambassador for policemen. And it was such a good brand because he was so respectful. He did not abuse his power, but he was absolutely as tough as nails. And it was like, I mean, you saw him and you were like, this dude could take on an entire gang and win. And I was awesome. like, so if I kind of sit next to him, nothing will happen to me, you know, but awesome. couldn't do that at the time. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. The, uh, and, I, and I can't resist. I got to bring up, cause you described the principal and the, was it a, was she an assistant principal whose voice real quick describe her voice? Cause the voice thing is just, oh, well, yeah. you so, laugh out loud. So, cause I think I had, I, I think I knew somebody like her. <laughs> oh yeah. Miss, uh, Miss Rodriguez. And she was, uh, it's so funny because, you know, the, the, the principal, you know, he, he was a really nice guy, but, uh, you know, my, my boss always says, you need to, you need to find a great team that compliments you. And his assistant vice principal was the enforcer. I mean, she was, and it was funny because she was this really, really um, um, very sort of elegant Hispanic woman, always in, always, in, always dressed to the nines. Everything was pressed in high heel shoes. But man, we were terrified of her. <laughs> and and in, she, no one could march around in high hills and just, just petrify you. And so she would walk around and she would just yell, you know, what are you doing? You know, stop it, you know, get over here. What are you, you know, and like with her voice could just throw you up against the wall. And she was so <laughs> prolific that we all referred to her as the Terminator. 
It is, so we never called her by her name. We were like the Terminators on our way because she was like, she would just with her voice, she could maim you. And it was, but it was so, she was such an authority figure. Luckily we didn't see her that often, but when we did, everybody was on their best behavior. And, uh, and, and, and but again, you know, when I, when I look back at what I was telling myself, you know, I was, I was telling myself, these guys don't care, but in fact they did. And so she did a good job. I mean, and also I think about, imagine being a woman in a culture of gang violence. And so when I look back on that now, I think to myself, she's probably the toughest one of them all because she's walking around a school with like, you know, five different gangs of hardcore, you know, hardcore dudes wanted to, you know, you know, stop each other. But every time she was anywhere, there was peace and calm, right? There was order when, when Miss Rodriguez was there. And I'm very grateful for that in hindsight, but I, I didn't understand it at the time. Everyone just wanted to avoid her. That's wild. I love that story. It's so awesome. The, uh, so thank you for sharing. And, and, and as we're drawing to a close, like I said, I got so many things. I got it, you know, it, somewhere down the road, you got to let me reach back out to you and let's do a part Absolutely. two. The, uh, we got, uh, but as we're drawing to a close, do, is there a message that you'd like the listeners and readers to take away to remember after today? And uh, especially as they go get your book, knowing what one of the things that are going to take away from reading your book? Yeah, I think, uh, well, I think there's a couple of things. I think the first one is um, I thought, I thought that middle school was just a really bad time for me. And having published this book, I am quickly realizing that everyone has their version of my story. And when I, when people have read my book now, they will call me or email me or text me and they'll start immediately start telling me their version of the story. And I think that I've been very encouraged by people wanting to open up because I wrote the book to be helpful at first, I wrote it for a young person, you know, like like 12-year-old Lorenzo. But I actually quickly changed in the middle of the book. And I said, actually, anybody that's dealt with fear and anxiety, this book is for them. And I, and I hope that through the story, they do not feel alone. And I hope that it actually encourages them to talk about these experiences with someone that can help them. And so to me, the ultimate goal, and actually, I'll tell you, I'm so proud of this, um, because this is why you write books. Since the book uh, has been published, and, and of, you know, uh, today's date, you know, which is October 15th, the book came out on the, uh, uh, the first, the first of October. I've had two people reach out to me to say, um, I've read your book. I was so encouraged and I scheduled my first session with a therapist and went already. And that just melted my heart when those people told me that, because that's ultimately what I wanted. You know, you don't write a book you know, to, to make money, everybody tells you that you write a book to get your ideas out. And hopefully these ideas are helpful to people. And that's really what I want is for it to help anybody that went through what I went through. And what's so, been so amazing to me is to see how many people struggle through middle school. And, and even if it wasn't real violence, the emotional obstacles that you have in middle school, I've, I'm coming to realize are the same for everyone, no matter what your gender or no matter what your generation was that you grew up in. And so I hope that this book can be a helpful resource for anybody that says middle school is a tough time. And if you're going through it, man, here's something that, that will at least help you feel like you're not alone and give you some real good tools to help. Excellent. Thank you so much. I, you know, one of the things I want to make sure I give you a chance to do, uh, if someone wanted to connect further with you, Lorenzo, where would, would you send them? And by the way, at the same time, when you're telling us that, do you want to share something about Geekdom Media or your podcast, The Brand Brothers? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a social media guy, so you can find me on social media. Um, 
uh, Facebook, Twitter. So on Twitter, my handle's at lgomez123. And it's the same handle on Instagram, lgomez123. Um, also, if, you know, people want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, I co-founded a company called Geek to Media, which is in the original content business. So we produce podcasts and books. And, uh, and I've, I've already started on the next two books um, through Geek to Media that will be on, on different topics. The next one's going to be on company culture. And, um, and so we're, I'm trying to get original content out there that I think is very helpful for the city and the ecosystem. One of those podcasts is the Brand Brothers. And uh, one of my mentors is a, is a guy named Bill Schley, who is a, mar he's, he is a marketing guru. And so we have this podcast together. We're actually in the middle of working on an online course that he's going to launch. It's just him. It's going to be really amazing. But I've learned so much from him. And I think that um, both my first book, Cilantro Diaries, and this book, I went through a really extensive uh, category branding marketing um, exercise to make sure that I could really focus on a specific audience. And I, and I attribute that to the principles that I learned from Bill. And so anybody that's, that is interested in marketing and branding should go check out the brand brothers because it's, it's really less about me. It's his show. I'm just there. I'm just there to kind of uh, join the fun. Um, but he really is a guru and, and uh, been, a, been a very good friend of mine and, and, a, and a mentor and an advisor on me, uh, advisor to many projects. Uh, but yeah, anybody can connect. And also, you know, I have a very uh, direct uh, email. It's Lorenzo at geekdom.com. And uh, Geekdom is a co-working space here in San Antonio. And, and Geekdom Media is a sort of a spinoff of that. But, you know, I've been working for the last 10 years on trying to make San Antonio better. And, and so this book is kind of part of that mission. So where I can sort of give back to the city that, that's given me a lot. Excellent. Thank you so much. I'll have all, um, I'll have those, uh, sites in my, uh, in my show notes, as well as, you know, to your, the websites as the podcast, as well as the, the, uh, handles for Twitter and uh, Instagram and all that sort of stuff. So anybody just need to go to my show notes and you'll, you'll find all that information that Lorenzo just shared with you. So I got, I got two questions that I got to ask and I got to squeeze yeah. them in here. So <laughs> one of them is this, if you had a chance to talk with an audience of 100 brand new teachers, what advice would you share with them about working with kids? Well, I think I would, I would first kind of give them a disclaimer, which is I don't know y'all's world. And so I, I never want to pass myself on as an expert, but I think that if I could give something from the business world that I think they could use that, that I have found very helpful is this notion that people only remember stories. And I think that to me, if I was a teacher and actually the best teachers that I remember uh, also happen to be the best storytellers. And so I think that stories are what people take with them. You know, nobody remembers the data, nobody remembers the, the dates of the things, but they'll remember the story. And so I think that, I also think that the more someone tells their personal story, the more it, it creates a safe environment that's approachable for young, for young people. And so I have found that whenever I'm presenting to kids it is the story that invites them closer and it is the story that they will go home and tell their parents or that they'll tell themselves. And so I think that to me, I think that if I was advising teachers, it's we all need to do a better job of brushing up on storytelling because that's how human beings have passed information from the stone age, you know, till now. And I think that it is a very powerful tool that we don't use enough. Wonderful advice. I love it. And uh, you're very good at those stories too. So I, well, I, I agree my parents, my parents are the original storytellers and I, I realized <laughs> that, that I got it from them. So it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's very influenced by them. Nice. The uh, last question, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? 
So I, yeah, um, there is a teach. There's many, there's many teachers that I write about in these two books. So there's a, there's one in Cilantro Diaries named Steve Badrich, uh, who is an amazing uh, community uh, college professor that I have in my brief stint at community college. In this book, I talk about Mr. Lehman, who was my high school uh, Latin teacher, who was very influential. But I also want to call out. Um, my fifth grade teacher, I wanted to write about her and we just couldn't find the right place to put this story in the book. Uh, but her name was Miss Graves. She was the first African American uh, uh, woman that I'd ever met in my life. She was my fifth grade teacher and uh, she's since passed and she was really one of the very first people to see my potential as a young man. And I just loved her. And she used to have these great phrases that she would say, and she would say, you know, one of her sassy ones, she'd see, she, I'd say, Miss Crazy, we have to do this, you have to do that. And she'd say, Renzo, I don't have to do anything, but stay black and die. And she was so sassy. But my favorite one that she would say, and this was the most endearing to me, was whenever I would learn something new, I would say, hey, I didn't know that, Miss Graves. And she would look at me in this really kind way and she would say, she would say, stick with me, baby, and you'll learn something. And I, and it just always, always made me feel so empowered. And, um, and I, I wish she was still alive because I'd go give her a copy of this book. Uh, but she really had a profound impact on me. And I'm, I was very, I'm very grateful for the time I had with her. That's awesome. Thank you so much. And Lorenzo, wow, your book is just amazing. It's, it's so powerful. I appreciate you spending time with us today. Uh, your book, once again, for everybody, it's Tafoya Toro, Three Years of Fear, published this year, just a few weeks ago. Yeah. Um, this is 2019, October 2019. It's just such an amazing book. Your stories and the way that you write are soul-stirring. It touches your heart and mind and your message about mental health and uh, being able to, uh, um, you know, be able to let some of those excuses or whatever, it, those experiences you had in the past, uh, let them go, are just uh, just right there. And I can imagine that you're, you've got, you're going to have many more of those emails coming to you about people are going are gonna to listen to your thoughts. So, uh, I, I can't thank you enough. Take care. Wishing you the best in all that you do. Thank you, Stephen, so much. And I appreciate it. And to your audience, thank you so much for giving it a listen. I'm, I'm honored. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. <laughs> The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.